invite you to open your Bibles to John. Teaching through the book of John this summer at the chapel, and we're getting to chapter 4. We're going to see the woman at the well, and she's going to ask some questions of Jesus. I grew up hearing the phrase, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Anybody ever heard that? The longer I've lived, I've realized there are some dumb questions. Some of my favorite occur on cruise ships. First time we ever took a cruise, the cruise director shared some some questions that typically they get asked if you get on the phone in your cabin and call down the customer service. I'll share just a few of them. Here's Here's a question. Does the crew sleep on board? Why did I pay so much to have such an awful view of the parking lot? Well, sir, we haven't left the dock yet. Referring to the pictures in the photo gallery, the question is, how do I know which ones are mine? Well, if you don't recognize yourself, it's a bad picture. How small does your face have to be to get a mini facial at the salon? What time does the midnight buffet start? Do these stairs go up or down? There's a do not disturb sign on my door. How do I get out? Does the elevator go to the front of the ship? I like this one. Does this ship generate its own power? No, if you look out the back, there's a really long extension cord that goes all the way to Miami. And my favorite, what do you do with the ice carvings after they melt? Those are bad questions. The questions we see this woman ask Jesus are not bad questions. We're going to focus on three. She actually asked more than three. We're going to focus on three this morning. Let's, let's look at the passage of Scripture, John chapter 4. Just to set context, Jesus has had in John chapter 3 the conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. He is in Jerusalem area, and you'll see that in verse 1. Therefore, verse 1, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So it came to a city of Samaria called Sukkar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Then came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. For the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You've correctly said I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. 
This you've said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Long passage, but I wanted you to get the context of what we're looking at with these three questions that the Samaritan woman is going to bring to Jesus. She's going to ask him a question about prejudice. She's going to ask him a question about water. And then she's going to ask him a question about worship. Great, great question. So the context is Jesus is around the Jerusalem area. The heat's getting turned up. It's not time for him to be glorified or be arrested yet. So Jesus leaves the Jerusalem area and begins traveling north to Galilee. And I love the passage that said he had to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to because a typical Jew would not have gone through Samaria. They have gone out of their way to avoid the very thing that's about to happen, and that is a conversation with a Samaritan because Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And just to give you the context, here comes this woman at the sixth hour. It would have been noon. Starting at 6 a.m., it's now noon, the sixth hour of the day. Sun was at the hottest, and that was not the time to go draw water. Why would you go to the well at noon to draw water? Because you didn't want to talk to anybody. Kind of like using the U-scan at Walmart. You just don't want to talk to anybody. (laughs) Well, that's what this woman, she came, and I'm sure she's thinking, if I come at noon, I won't see those ladies who come early morning, or more probably the ones who come at night in the cool of the evening to replenish their family's water. So I'm going to go at noon. And as she approaches the well, probably her heart sinks because somebody's at the well. She may get asked a question because she was a woman with a reputation, obviously. We'll get into that a little bit more later. But then she sees it's not just anybody, it's a man. And it's not just any man, it's a Jewish man. So she continues to the well, and there's Jesus, tired, probably thirsty, resting while his disciples go into town to buy food. And this woman approaches to draw water, and Jesus strikes up a conversation with her, which is important to note. Now, why did the Samaritans and the Jews not get along? In a nutshell, not to give you a long history lesson, during the time of the exile when the Jews were carried away into captivity, all the Jews in Jerusalem typically got carried away. The, the ones who were outside the city of Jerusalem, some of them did not get carried into captivity. They remained in Israel, and they started intermarrying, and they started worshiping idols. And it got to the point where the Jews coming back out of captivity didn't trust the ones who now are the Samaritans. Even though they worship the same God, little different, but they worship the same God, the, the Jews... The, the Samaritans, who would have considered themselves still to be Jews, even offered to help rebuild the city, and the Jews in Jerusalem refused their help. And so the worshipers of God in Samaria built their own temple in, on Mount Gerizim in, in 400 B.C. So this is right at the end of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament is written about 400 years before the birth of Christ. And one Jewish faction destroyed that temple around 100 years, a little over 100 years before Christ was coming back, or Christ was to be born. So they didn't like each other. They didn't trust each other. The Jews, especially a strict, observant Jew, would have looked at the Samaritans and said, you're half-breeds, you only worship 
part of the Bible. You only read the first five books of the Bible, so you really don't know God because you haven't read the rest of the Old Testament that's available. And so they didn't have any dealings with each other. And so for Jesus to ask the question, Jesus is doing so. He's breaking the rules. <laughs> he's breaking the rules. And that is, first rule is, Jews didn't have any dealings with Samaritans. They certainly would not have used the same utensils. So for him to drink out of something this woman had handled and handed to him would have been strictly against the code. Secondly, men didn't speak to women in public. Men didn't even speak, Jewish men didn't speak to their own wife in public. Especially a rabbi would not have spoken to a woman in public. And she was a sinner. There's no way that the typical Jewish man would have spoken to this woman because she had a reputation. That's why she's coming at noon, to avoid conversation with people, to avoid shame or judgment or comments behind her back. But here's one thing we learn about Jesus from prejudice. He didn't avoid people. As I was thinking about this this week, part of, part of the prejudice is you avoid people who aren't like you. Well, who was like Jesus? If Jesus avoided everybody that wasn't like him, he had never spoken to anybody because he was God in the flesh, perfect, sinless, child of God. And yet Jesus went out of his way, literally, even though Samaria was on the way to where he was going, he did something nobody else would do. He went through Samaria intentionally because I believe he had a sovereign appointment with this woman at the well. And he could have ignored her. He could have let her come and walked away until she finished and come back to the well. But he asked her for a drink. And it strikes up a conversation to deal with more than just water out of a well. See, this woman was thirsty. She wasn't thirsty for water that you get out of a well. She was thirsty for God. And they're going to have a conversation about God in this passage. The most dangerous assumption in prejudice is this, that God's on your side. Isn't that amazing throughout history? People think, people try to pull God onto their side. Let me tell you something. God isn't choosing sides. He's already chosen a side. You better make sure you're on his side. So what do we learn from Jesus about prejudice? Jesus didn't avoid people. Jesus spoke to the least of these. Jesus spoke to the ones that other people of his race would not have spoken to. And he offers her something that only God can give. So first, we have a question of prejudice. Then we have a question of water. Jesus didn't pursue this question. She asked him, how is it that you being a Jew are asking me for a drink of water? He doesn't really answer that question. But he says, you know what? If you knew who it was that was talking to you and the gift of God, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. What's Jesus talking about? Well, she doesn't get it. She thinks, you're offering me living water. You don't even have anything to dig with or to dip with. They assumed, and, and this was true about Jacob's well, it was fed by an underground spring, so it, in, a, in, in a sense, was flowing water that had been there forever. But this is in the middle of the desert. Water is extremely important. That's why you had to come to that well at least once a day to get enough water to last you to the next day for your family. And Jesus is offering her water, but he doesn't have anything to draw with. So she's thinking humanly, where are you getting this water from? Jesus answers her question. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew that I was here to offer you eternal life and who it is that says to you, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. And then she says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well? She goes back to the human reasoning. She says, you know what? This is our well. 
Jacob of the Old Testament gave us this well. He drank of it. His children drank of it. His cattle drank of it. You're not claiming to be greater than him, are you? Jesus doesn't answer the question, but the answer would have been, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. But Jesus goes on to talk about water. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. You're going to have to come back tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. But what I'm giving you will become living water that will spring up within you. It's like you've got your own well. Because God is going to take up residence in your life. And the cool thing about having living water is it doesn't just feed you, but it splashes on other people. And what Jesus is offering her is this water that she doesn't have to come and draw. It'll be a source in you to replenish yourself and others. And so she says, sir, give me this water. She's ready to respond to the invitation. The hymn's not playing, but she's walking the aisle. Give me this water. But Jesus has to deal with something in her life, and that's sin. And so it's interesting, why does Jesus go to asking her about her husband? It's because this lady had a bad reputation. This lady had had five husbands. She's living with a guy now that's not her husband. And Jesus is still offering her eternal life, but he wants to deal with the issue. So he says, bring your husband. She says, well, I have no husband. In fact, the word she uses is absolute negative. Essentially, she's saying, well, I've never had a husband. (laughs) But for Jesus, who's God, to know not only are you saying you don't have a husband, you've had five. And you're really living with number six, and you just haven't gotten married yet. I don't know how that woman would have, how, how she responded to that. We, we know what she asked the question, but she's, she's trying to get by with something. And Jesus calls her out on it, and she has to confess, well, you're right. You must be a prophet. And she turns her thoughts immediately to worship. What Jesus is dealing with is the fact, ladies, you can come to me to receive eternal life, but you've got to acknowledge that you're talking to the Savior and that you've got a sin issue that we're going to deal with. You're going to repent of that. In fact, the cool thing about this lady, I'll already tell you the end of the story that occurs in next week's passage. This lady becomes the first real evangelist for Christ. She becomes the first person that Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah to. And I love what she says. Hey, come and see this man who's told me everything about me. Come meet the Messiah, the one that we've waited on, the one that's been prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. But she says, I perceive you're a prophet, and she turns to worship. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. She could have looked over at Mount Gerizim and said, that's where we've worshiped my whole life and for generations before me. I've been taught my whole life that's where we worship. But you people say that it's in Jerusalem where you ought to worship. And she's basically saying, which is it? In fact, the word that she uses is, spot topography just give me the spot i think about that for us at the time sometimes people can only worship in a certain spot some people are like well i got to go down to the church so that i can worship listen you need to be worshiping god every day of your life and it's not we'll get to this in a minute it's not just with lips and music so it's not about a spot and jesus says to her woman you're asking me a question about a spot is it here or is it there believe me there's an hour coming when you're not going to worship at this spot or that spot because you're worshiping something you don't know. The word worship, I'm going to teach you one Greek word this morning, proskuneo. Everybody say that. Very good. Way to go, Sam. I heard you. Proskuneo. Pros means toward. Kuneo means to kiss. So I want you to think about this. When we worship God, we are literally kissing towards God. And what Jesus is saying to this woman is, you're kissing towards something you don't know. 
Because you've got to understand something. We worship what we know. The salvation is from the Jews. What's Jesus talking about? Jesus was salvation. Jesus was a Jew who comes out of the tribe of Judea, of Judah. He is the promised Messiah. And what he's trying to convince this woman is, quit worried about the spot and worship the Savior that you're talking to right now. The hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. To worship the Father in spirit means he is spirit. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. The Father is spirit. So we worship him not with just externals, but with our heart. From the inside out, we are worshiping that which is worthy to be worshipped. To worship in truth means you're worshiping something that's not concealed. It's, it's laid bare. You're not pretending. You're not faking it. You're not just going through the motions when other people are looking. But you worship a God who is worthy to be worshipped. For these, the Father seeks. And I love the meaning of the word seeks. It literally means to desire or require. Did you know God desires worshipers? God has angels in heaven that worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There is no time in heaven, but for us to understand it, there's angels in heaven that do nothing but worship God. And they serve him in that way. But God is looking for your worship. And he's worthy of your worship. He says, you must worship in spirit and in truth. There's three times in the whole book of John that John says you must do something. Last chapter it was, you must be born again. Last chapter he also said, Jesus must be lifted up, and when he is, he'll draw all men to himself. And now the third must of the whole book is, you must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So, lady, you don't worship the way you've been worshiping. You've been worshiping a mountain. You've been worshiping a spot. You need to worship the God who's not confined there. And the problem with man we like worshiping a God that we control. He's in this spot. That's where I left him. <laughs> God doesn't stay here. God takes up residence in you. And so we are worshiping a God who is living, a God who is worshiped in spirit and in truth. Whatever you think about God is of utmost importance in your worship. Cain. Cain came to bring a sacrifice, literally offer worship, and it wasn't acceptable to God because Cain was only doing the external things. Abel brought the acceptable sacrifice because Abel gave of himself. Spurgeon put it this way, God does not regard our voices, he hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all. So I want to end by talking about worship a little bit. I think worship is incredibly important. I think the most important thing you do today is worship. And I don't just mean attending a service from 10 to 10.45 or 11 o'clock. We worship with our lives every day, even when we're not in a church service. So just a few thoughts. I've got a long list. I've cut it down as much as I can, but i still got seven things, so don't freak out. First one is this. We don't worship with lips or music only. Isaiah put it this way in 29.13. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words, and they honor me with their lips only, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. So God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, is already saying, you're, you're pretending to worship, but you're just going through the motions. So we don't worship with lips or music only. Some people consider music is the only form of worship. So as soon as the, the worship team left, worship ended, now we got the preaching of the word. This is also part of worship. But what you do the rest of your day is also worship. You're ascribing to God worth based on how you live your life. So it's not just with your mouth, and it's not just when we sing songs. 
but it's every aspect of your life. Number two, you can only worship what you know. And the better you get to know God, the better your worship. I hadn't planned on sharing this illustration, but there's somebody here this morning that might have been there when this happened. So, Angela, I don't know if you remember this or not. But when I was youth pastor at a church in Gastonia, North Carolina, we did a kissing contest. That's been my thought today when I'm thinking about you're worshiping something you don't know. You're kissing towards something you don't know. Take a rain check on that. It might have a lip fungus we ain't identified yet. Be careful. But I did a, I did a kissing contest, and here's what it looked like to everybody in the audience. All the students, guys and girls, middle school, high schoolers, I said, we're going to have a kissing contest. So I picked three of the prettiest girls in the room. And then I asked for volunteers, every guy's hand. Yeah, even the guys with girlfriends raising their hand, and he said, I'm trying to help him out. And then I took them back, and we blindfolded them. Let me just tell you something. If you ever get taken out of a room and a blindfold's put on you, something good ain't about to happen. Angel, do you remember this? We'll talk about it after. So I'm going to have these guys come up, and I said, all right, you're going to kiss each girl up here and tell us which one's the best kisser. What they didn't know is I had arranged this weeks in advance. Charles, do you remember hearing about this? That's why I'm not a youth pastor there anymore. So I took the three girls off stage and I brought those boys' mothers up here. And I'd arranged this with their moms weeks in advance. Danny Sylvie and Troy Carson. And so I went to their moms. They said, oh, yes, my kid hadn't kissed me in years. I'll be happy to do this. So I put some parameters on the kind of kiss they could give their mom. But they're blindfolded thinking they're kissing the prettiest girl in the youth group. And the bad thing is they kiss their mom the first time, and then they turn into the crowd. They're blindfolded. Whoop, 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 and all the guys are going, I feel a little nauseated. <laughs> so they kiss their mom three times. You know, one time she's a little taller than the next time. And he picked which one kissed the best. I don't remember much after that except one of those kids kept coming to the youth group. The other one became a youth pastor. <laughs> I need to call him and ask him if he's ever done this. But listen, don't kiss towards something you don't know. In fact, you really can't kiss towards something you don't know. Jesus tells this woman, you're, you're kissing, you're worshiping something you don't know. How do you worship that which you don't know? And the better you know God, the more you spend time around God's people, the more you spend time in reading the Word of God, the more time you spend in prayer, you get to know God better, and your worship is better. Worship also must be exclusive. It's God alone. One of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. I used to think that just meant, you know, on the list. Just as long as God's number one, you can have other gods. No. It literally means you shall have no other gods before my face. So I should not see you worshiping any other gods. It must be exclusive. Listen, if Satan tempted Jesus to worship him, He's certainly going to try to tempt you to worship anything other than Jesus. Worship is costly, not flippant. What if it costs you your life to worship God? I love what David said. We won't turn there, but 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. David has committed this sin against God where he had numbered the people and all that, and God comes and pronounces a judgment of him, and, the, and he actually gives him three choices. He takes the one where he's going to experience the sword of the Lord. So all these fighting men are wiped out, and, and David comes back in repentance, and God relents and says, go and offer me a sacrifice. So he goes down to the threshing floor of Oranon, and he said, I want to use your threshing floor. And Oranon says, well, 
I'll give you the sacrifice. I'll give you the cow for the sacrifice. And David said, no, I insist on paying for it. For I will not offer the Lord worship which costs me nothing. That's what's costly. It has to be undivided. One of the temptations, James talks about it, Psalms talks about it, is having half your mind focused on God and half of it focused somewhere else. Listen, to worship God, you need to put your total, complete focus on God and worship him because he's worthy of worship. In fact, you'll only worship that which you value the most. So if you're trying to worship God and there's something else in your life that's more important to you than God, you need to deal with that. Worship also needs to be unselfish. It's not about receiving. It's about giving. I learned this one early on in my ministry. You can actually worship worship. Some people worship worship. They're so drawn to worship that they realize, I'm not worshiping God anymore. I'm worshiping the feeling that I get when I do worship God. And I've already said that worship's not with your lips only. It's possible to take God's name in vain in worship. When it says, you shall have no other gods before me, or no, the other of the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. It literally means to lift up as meaning nothing. So when we sing a song and you're just mouthing words, be careful. Because you could be lifting up his name as meaning nothing because you're not even focused on what you're worshiping. Last one. Worship's not optional. Worship's not optional. Jesus said to this woman, you must worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for that's who the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is looking for people to worship him, men and women, young people, to worship him. But it's not optional. Philippians 2, and I'll close with this verse. Verses 19 through 11. For this reason God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are on earth, or those who are in heaven, those on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day when you will be forced to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It's not optional. But you and I don't have to wait for that day. Because when that day comes, we will have already been worshipers our whole life. And so when we bow to acknowledge Jesus is Lord, we'll do it with a smile on our face and a song in our heart because we recognize he is worthy. But there will be some that have rejected God. John chapter 1, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Some of those people will have to, through clenched teeth, acknowledge finally that Jesus is Lord. Even the demons who right now are keep trying to keep you from hearing this message, trying to keep you from responding to this message, and trying to keep you from worshiping God by keeping you busy doing something else. Even the demons will have to bow. I don't know if Satan's got knees or not, but one day Satan himself, who thought he could put his throne above God, one day will have to bow and acknowledge Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So worship's not optional. So what am I asking you to do? Be like the woman that comes to the well thirsty. She didn't realize that she was thirsty for something that well couldn't provide. She needed living water. She needed water that would spring up in her life and splash over to other people. The people you hang out with will know that you've been in the presence of God if you're worshiping God as he desires and requires to be worshiped. Let's pray together.